Welcome to The Churches the World, Chapter 1, Episode 2, The King James Version. When I was pulling this episode together, my intent was to have it condensed to about 25 or 30 minutes like I said I would in the introduction. But once I got into the material, I realized that it was so dense and so interesting at the same time that there was no way I could do it justice in just 25 to 30 minutes. So I've split the King James Version into two episodes. We'll cover the first half this week in episode two, and then next week we'll finish up and have a little bit of fun at the end. So let's get started with part one of the King James Version. Before we start in the beginning, it's important to understand how the versions of the Bible I will be utilizing were constructed. As stated in the last episode, I will be using the Christian Bible not only as the starting point for this journey, but I will also be referring to it from the beginning to the Revelation. I will also use its structure to order the podcast. The first version I will use, at least in the terms of the date when it was first published, is the King James Version, or as it's known in Great Britain, the Authorized Version. This version is widely regarded as the most printed book in the history of mankind. And of course, it doesn't hurt that it's been in existence for over 400 years, and its introduction coincided with an explosion in the number of printing presses in Europe. But as we will learn later, there isn't just one King James Version. The King James Version is a word-for-word translation of the Old Testament, translated from the Masoretic Hebrew text, while the Apocrypha was translated also word-for-word from the Greek Septuagint. Whoa, 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 the what? The Apocrypha which are the books not included in the traditional Protestant Bible. I'm sure some of you know which books I'm referring to, but many more will have to wait. We'll get to those books in the future. The New Testament was translated also word for word from the Textus Receptus edition of the Greek text, so-called because most existing texts of the time were in agreement with it. The translation was authorized, or better stated, ordered by King James I in England. To back up in history just a second, with the death of Queen Elizabeth I in 1603, Prince James VI of Scotland became King James I of England. And remember that in that moment in time, the King of England was also the head of the Church of England. When he took the throne, the number of English translations of the Bible caused disunity in the kingdom. As such, the Church of England was in a divided state. Specifically, there were the conformists who did not desire for the church to change, and on the other side were the Puritans, who sought to reform the church. So, in October 1603, King James called a conference of theologians, lawyers, and laymen to address the issue. Wait, lawyers? Remember, at that time, there was no separation of church and state. This group met in Hampton Court Palace, located in present-day London Borough of Richmond-upon-Thames. You have to give it to the Brits. Even their town names seem very dignified. King James ordered that in January 1604 there would be a conference, and I'm quoting here, for hearing and for the determining of things pretended to be amiss in the church. I think the word pretended may have made a few of the reformers a little angry. On the second day of the conference, the clergy approached the king and stated their desire for a new translation to replace the bishop's Bible first printed in 1568, and the Geneva Bible printed in its complete form in 1560. They also wanted to thwart the Catholic challenge symbolized by the Doemi Reims Bible. The actual proposal for a translation came from a Puritan, 
Dr. John Reynolds, president of Corpus Christi College. The clergy knew that the Geneva Version had won the support of the people because of its excellent scholarship, accuracy, and exhaustive commentary. However, they did not want to keep the controversial margin notes, such as proclaiming the Pope an Antichrist. Essentially, the leaders of the church desired a Bible for the people, with scriptural references only for word clarification or cross-references, while King James was attempting to bring unity to the Church of England by producing a unified and new translation of the Bible, free of Calvinist and Popish influence. Accordingly, the king agreed with the proposal. The conformists resisted the movement towards a new translation for a time, suspecting the Puritans of ulterior motives. At the same time, the Puritan party pressed for immediate action, and the king did his best to appease both and worked to secure bilateral support. In reality, he favored the proposal of the Puritans, but at the same time he pronounced the Geneva Version to be the best of all in the English language, and therefore pleased the conformist party. Even though he was the king, James knew how to be a politician. The overall goal was to produce a better translation than any other then in existence, a translation that could be understood by common people. So how did they go about this? What was the translation process? In producing this translation, there were six panels of translators, all personally appointed by King James. Each panel had approximately eight translators, two panels meeting at the University of Oxford, two at the University of Cambridge, and two at Westminster. The number varies primarily because while working, some died or resigned and had to be replaced. They all were presided over by the Dean of Westminster and by two Hebrew professors from Oxford and Cambridge Universities. They all began their work in 1604. Of these six panels, two oversaw the translation of the New Testament, three oversaw the translation of the Old Testament, and one panel oversaw the translation of the Apocrypha. In case you want real specifics, the first panel at Westminster, which had ten translators, was assigned the Old Testament from Genesis to 2 Kings. The second panel, numbering seven translators, had the letters of the New Testament. The first panel at Cambridge, with eight translators, had 1 Chronicles to Song of Solomon, and the second panel at Cambridge, with seven translators, had the apocryphal books. The first Oxford panel, numbering seven, were assigned the prophetical books of the Old Testament from Isaiah to Malachi. The second Oxford panel, with eight translators, were given the four Gospels, Acts, and the Revelation. The translators themselves add a little more color to the history, and here are the stories of a few of those translators. First, there was Dr. Lancelot Andrews, who was the Dean of Westminster and presided over the Westminster panel. One biographer said that he was so skilled in all, especially Oriental languages, that some conceived he might, if then living, almost have served as interpreter general at the confusion of tongues. In other words, he knew many languages and was seen as one of the best translators of his era to the point that he could have straightened things out at Babel. Keep in mind that at the time, the word Oriental did not define as being from Eastern Asia, such as China or Japan, but instead meant only those lands east of Europe. Going back to the word's origin, if you wanted to orient yourself and therefore know which direction is east, merely look to where the sun rises. Dr. Andrews successively became the Bishop of Chinchester, Eli, and Winchester. He was born in 1555 and died in 1626. Next, there was Dr. Andrew Lively, who was a professor of Hebrew at Cambridge, and therefore the head of the Cambridge panel. He was also known for his knowledge of Eastern languages, especially Hebrew. 
He died in 1605, having been a professor of Hebrew for 25 years and before the translation task was complete. When he died, he left his widow 11 children to care for. Dr. John Overall was installed as a professor of divinity at Cambridge in 1596, and in 1604 he was the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. He was considered by some the most learned man in divinity in England. He served in the first Westminster Panel of Translators. In 1614, he was made Bishop of Lichfield in Coventry. He was transferred to the See of Norwich in 1618. Dr. Overall was born in 1559 and died in 1619. Dr. Adrian de is thought to have been the only non-Briton employed on the work. He was born in Artois, France in 1531, with his father a Spaniard and his mother a Belgian. In 1582, he was Professor of Divinity at Leiden University in present-day Netherlands. In 1587, he went to England. He became Prebend, which is a senior member of the clergy of Canterbury, and afterwards the Canon of Westminster. He was part of the first Westminster panel and was noted for his knowledge of Hebrew. Dr. De Saravia died in 1612, just as the translation was being published. William Bedwell, or according to some sources, Bedwell, was considered one of the greatest Arabic scholars of his day. He was also fluent in other Eastern languages and was a member of the first panel at Westminster, Being a Renaissance man, or more modernly referred to as a polymath, he also invented a geometric ruler, considered to be one of the precursors to the modern slide rule. Well, come to think of it, slide rules aren't that modern anymore. At his death, he left an unfinished manuscript of Arabic lexicon, but he did complete a Persian dictionary. Dr. Lawrence Chatterton served for 38 years as the first master or head of Emmanuel College, now a part of the University of Cambridge, and was well-versed in rabbinical learning. He was one of the few Puritans among the translators. He was born in either 1536 or 1537 as a Catholic, and when he converted to Anglicanism, he was disinherited by his father. He died in 1640 at the age of 103 or 4. As an aside, soon after he left Emmanuel College, John Harvard was admitted, the same John Harvard for whom Harvard University is named, a little weave in the fabric of history. Dr. John Reynolds, remember he was the man who first suggested a new translation, was well versed in both Hebrew and Greek and was also a Puritan. At the time, he was serving as president of Corpus Christi College. He was born in 1549 and died of consumption, modernly referred to as tuberculosis in 1607 before the translation was complete. Dr. Richard Kilby was at first rector, then a professor of Hebrew at Lincoln College, now a part of the University of Oxford. He was considered to be one of the best Hebrewists of his era and was part of the first Oxford panel. He was born in 1560 and died in 1620. Dr. Miles Smith was a student of the classic authors from his youth and was well acquainted with the rabbinical learning and well versed in Hebrew, Shadley, Syriac, and Arabic. Dr. Smith served in the first Oxford panel as well as the editing committee. He, along with Thomas Bilson, performed the final examination of the text before sending it to the printer. It is unclear when he was born, with some sources citing 1554 and others 1568. He died in 1624. Thomas Bilson was educated at Winchester College and New College, Oxford. He began to distinguish himself as a poet until, on receiving ordination, he gave himself wholly to theological studies. He became the Bishop of Worcester in 1596, then the Bishop of Winchester in 1597. He was so highly regarded by the king that he gave King James's coronation sermon. 
he advised the king not to hold the Hampton Court Conference and instead to leave religious matters to the professionals. My interpretation of this was not that he meant to insult the king, but was instead to keep less learned religious men out, maybe the lawyers. He personally was no stranger to controversy, having been caught up in the debate over the harrowing of hell. Yes, the harrowing of hell, that seems a bit redundant to me too. Bilson's literal views on the descent of Christ into hell were too orthodox for conformist Anglicans, while the Puritan wing of the church preferred a metaphorical or spiritual reading. Bilson steadfastly maintained that Christ went to hell not to suffer, but to wrestle the keys of hell out of the devil's hands. He died in 1660 and is buried at Westminster Abbey between Richard II and Edward III. John Boyes is reported to have had the ability to read the Hebrew Bible at age five. At six years of age, he could write Hebrew elegantly. He attended St. John's College at Cambridge, initially intending to study medicine, but found that its study brought on hypochondria. So he switched to Greek, of course, then spent 10 years as the chief lecturer in Greek at the same school. Coincidentally, his mentor and Greek teacher at St. John's was Andrew Downs. In 1596, he married the daughter of Francis Holt, rector at Boxworth, and after the death of Holt, took over that post. He served in the second Cambridge panel and also on the editing committee. While translating, he kept the notes that he made on the Latin Vulgate, which were later printed. He was born in 1560 and died in 1643, predeceased by his wife and all seven of his children. Now that had to be tough. Andrew Downs was educated at St. John's College, Cambridge. In 1571, he was elected fellow of the same school, and in 1585, he was appointed as a professor of Greek, a position he held for nearly 40 years. Similar to Boyes, he also served in the second Cambridge panel and on the editing committee. He was born in 1549 and died in either 1627 or 1628. Sir Henry Seville was educated at Brasenose College, Oxford, and became a fellow of Merton College, now a part of Oxford University. He was known as both a Greek scholar and mathematician. He was also King James's predecessor, Queen Elizabeth I's Greek tutor. In 1601, he was arrested on suspicion of having been involved in the rebellion of the Earl of Essex, but he was quickly released and his friendship with the faction of Essex aided him in gaining the favor of King James. So much favor that the king knighted him in 1604. He served on the second Oxford panel and was born in 1549 and died in 1622. As an aside, his grandson, Sir Charles Sedley, went on to become the Speaker of the British House of Commons. Dr. Thomas Holland graduated from Exeter College, Oxford in 1570. After some time on the continent, and at that time, if you were English, that meant Europe, he returned to Exeter to serve as rector and then later as a professor of divinity. As a member of the university community, he distinguished himself as a skilled disputant, what we now call a debater. At the time, theological disputations were held as an important part of the university experience. It was also valued as an essential tool in determining the truth. In addition, such disputations were viewed as entertainment and were often presented at universities to mark the visit of a monarch. While in academia, Holland participated in two significant disputations, one marking the visit to Oxford by Queen Elizabeth and the other a visit from King James. He was a member of the first Oxford panel and was born in 1539 and died in 1612. I wish I could say that this was the first time I had heard the word disputation, but sadly the first time was when Anne Rice used its derivative. After reading about these men, I'm beginning to feel like a bit of an underachiever. 
While I do not know much Greek nor Hebrew, I can do a little math. The King James Version has just under 1,200 chapters, a number, of course, which does not include the apocryphal books. That means, on average, given the number of translators, a translator was responsible for translating nearly 30 chapters. And some of you think it's very hard to just read the Bible. Think about how it must have been to handwrite it. No laptops, no typewriters, no online translation engines. Only unforgiving ink, expensive paper, and poor lighting. Oh, and the plague. Yeah, the bubonic plague. You know, the one carried by the fleas on rats. And when the town crier called for the people to bring out their dead in London, about a quarter of the population was carted off. It was such a lovely moment in history. And I'm sure the translators of Exodus 9 and Revelation 16 saw no humor, but maybe even similarities to their current situations. And let's not forget that the man who ordered the work, your boss, the king, the head of both state and church, participated in literal witch hunts. No pressure there. Fun times indeed. A quick step down a rabbit hole. In 1599, before becoming the King of England, but while King of the Scots, James wrote a book called Demonology. No joke, that was the actual title, Demonology. And as a published author on the subject, I guess that would make James a demonologist. In this book, actually a series of three books, structured in the form of a dialogue between two characters, he voiced his approval of witch hunting. The book was also reported to have provided the background material for Shakespeare's Macbeth. You really can't make this stuff up. And thou shalt hear about Shakespeare again before the clock ticketh half a fortnight. And yes, I did purposely murder Old English. I mention all of this not because I want to disparage this version of the Bible, because to me at least, it's really interesting. Speaking only for myself... I cannot really judge the book because there is no possible way I could completely understand the cultural context in which it was written. Not to mention that none of us are perfect, even the most prolific of the New Testament writers. Remember that Saul turned Paul took an active role in the stoning of Stephen, reputed to be the first Christian martyr. More on that later, but now I need to step out of that rabbit hole and wrap up this episode. Next week we'll get into the actual translation process and then talk about what happened to the version after it was printed. We'll also touch on how Shakespeare may or may not have been involved in the translation. That's the episode for this week. Join me next week when we will dive into the second part of the King James Version. As I've mentioned before, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at thechurchestheworld.com. Comments, questions, and essentially any correspondence can be sent to comments at thechurchestheworld.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the term The Churches the World as four separate words. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.